Getting off to, I don't know if it's a slow start or a fast start by our standards, yeah. but um, after our last one, I, we put out a bit of a call for uh, topics, yeah. and uh, one of our loyal listeners, well, my brother, <laughs> <laughs> who is a loyal listener, uh, suggested a few things, and one was um, best documentaries. Yeah, and uh, something we we, we've, we always talk about documentaries because uh, they feature as a kind of a, a highlight at festivals every year and, and just general viewing, but we've never sort of really talked specifically about documentary, although Doug has written quite uh, eloquently about uh, non-fiction filmmaking and and a, a, a range of topics over at uh, Panagraph Punch. So Yeah, that's been a bit of a hobby horse of mine, and also yeah. because I, um, I work as an editor largely in non-fiction yeah. or reality or documentary, this very... Fluid. Yeah, and, and and that's something I found is um, the original proposal, I think, was our top ten documentaries. Yeah. And us being um, the maximalists that we are, <laughs> quickly uh, spread our wings a bit wider, as we'll get into shortly. But um, there are all these questions about, you know, what's at the margins when you get into essay film or city symphonies, uh, you know, as something like Koyanis Katsi, or if you get into concert films, if you get into... Is that uh, Koyanis Katsi, yes. yes. Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> if, if, you, if you listen to the soundtrack, they go, Koyanis Katsi. Nice. <laughs> um, so when I was getting down my list, I had some hard calls to make of what counts, what doesn't count. There's this whole genre of hybrid documentary yeah. that's increasingly popular that plays yeah, I fast and loose with the that. truth. And so, so I just kind of went with my gut in the end. But um, as we started making our lists, I, there were, I, we started both circling in on some filmmakers. Yeah. And I thought we'd start with five filmmakers that we both circled in on, any yeah. of whom could have filled several spots on either of our lists yeah and, and we're not we're not strictly going for a uh, top 10 uh, because as Doug said it's very difficult to narrow it down to 10 um, which is always a problem with kind of lists but also I think there are some that we've talked about a lot at, at, in various yes. other contexts um, and so I didn't didn't feel like we wanted to go over those again um, but there uh, shall we dust those off quickly in, yeah, case yeah. Anyone, in case anyone's listening and making a list um, at previous festivals I know The Act of Killing is a film that uh yeah, um, and we yep, fond of. Filling. Um, yes, it's um, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer and anonymous yes. uh, Indonesian filmmakers. Uh, mm. Yeah, and and his and the sequel to that, the look of silence. Look of silence yeah, yes. and so those are both um, just very fascinating and and brutal, but really creative accounts of atrocities and, and bringing things to light that have sort of sitting in the darkness, particularly in Indonesia for a long time. Yeah. Um, um, another festival hit was uh, Kate Plays Christine. Oh, yeah, that was that was my um, oh, possibly second top film uh, of Festival 2016. Uh, and that's Robert Greene's kind of pseudo-documentary, um, a fake film within a film. It's about Christine yeah, Chubbuck. Christ- yes. Christine Chubbuck, um, and he follows actor, actress Caitlin Shell, who's preparing for this supposed role of playing her in a documentary um, but it's almost like behind the scenes about her process of getting into this character with very minimal information um, and sort of looks at how much can we actually know and where does the line sort of blur between what you infer from people's accounts and and sort of popular portrayals of what's of an event when you can't really know yeah and this issue of dramatization it's actually a very good if you're interested in documentary theory and 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 truth telling in cinema it's actually a very good pairing with um antonio campos's film christine which is the fictional telling starring rebecca hall um so that's a 
fascinating double feature. Yeah. Um, another fascinating double feature of a different <laughs> kind. I think you was it last time that you mentioned uh, best worst movie? Yeah, yeah. And and our and our ten films um, best worst movie yes, has brought us together. Yeah. It's obviously um, a very kind of heartwarming documentary about a kind of phenomena which uh, is sort of well known now about cult cinema and about uh, what makes what is ostensibly a bad film actually really great yes. and about sincerity about the experiences that people have in these things and, and why people are drawn to this kind of cinema yeah. yeah and I think in the wake of the disaster artist it's something yeah. that's you know can be freshly appreciated yeah. and especially because um, it's like that um Tale of Two Cities. Is it Tale of Two Cities that starts, you know, every happy family has the same story, but no two um, uh, sad families are alike, or something like that? Uh, I'm not sure. Tale of Two Cities starts with the oh, best of times, times, it was worst times. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, th- there's a reason we're not doing a literature <laughs> podcast, at any rate. Um, on the more political side of things, of course, Citizen Four, the oh, great yeah. Edward Snowden uh, documentary yeah, Laura Poitras. By, yeah, yeah, Laura Poitras is. Um, I wrote on Risk this yeah. year, which I think is which a, I still haven't seen. Yeah, and I think is a, is not as good of a film as Citizen Four, but it's a it's a more thorny, complicated yeah. film, and it's interesting yeah. to see her wrestle with that. And yeah. um, she's also been doing a lot of short form work yeah, online and, as and well. Yeah, and a lot of kind of um, uh, experimental in the mix with other people looking at the refugee crisis a while back. And, and uh, this year, of course, I Am Not Your Negro yes. was, uh, I guess, last year's yeah. Um, Oscars. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was a phenomenal uh, James Baldwin film. Yeah, and, and stunning. Uh, he is, I mean, obviously he's gone, but the archival footage of him and uh, and his writings as um, narrated by um, Samuel L. Jackson are just electric um, and so poignant for today. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it, even if you don't think it's a film that you want to watch, it is a film that you want to watch, and yeah. Samuel Jackson's performance is extraordinary in it. I didn't know till the end credits. Yeah. Spoiler alert! And Sarah Polly, um, who's uh, just a fantastic actress and uh, female filmmaker um, from Canada, uh, did her own sort of mixed up. How do we approach narrative truth and the stories about ourselves mm. in, in a film stories we tell, which yeah. uh, used her father's um, memoirs, which she got him to read um, as the kind of the backdrop narration to her film as she kind of explored some of the family histories and secrets uh, particularly pertaining to her own birth and yeah and fascinating so it's all about sort of self-discovery but also how do we fashion these narratives about our families and the people we know and how much do we actually know and how much is covered up and how much is kind of ignored and yeah beautifully and fascinating kind of piece of that yeah, I, I'd love to see it again because I don't, I don't think it struck me quite as strongly as it struck a bunch of people. I've heard a lot of people say it was mm. their one of their favorite films of all time. It struck me as quite good. But um, I do find this whole question of um, documentary as a form of narrative yeah. shaping because maybe because I work with that, I think about that all the time. But I mm. think it's something that if you're just getting into documentary, you often think of it like, oh, there's fiction film and there's non-fiction yeah. film and documentaries have to be true. And it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. And I think as we increasingly see in the news, you know, it is about manufacturing a narrative that yeah. has certain uh, opinions built into it. And yeah. so um, films like that that lay that bare are often really good ways to kind of break through kind of traditional understandings of documentary. Um, now, I mentioned last time Letters, Letter from Siberia, oh, Chris the Chris Marker film, which uh, is sort of this essay film that is kind of somewhat documentary, somewhat not. That was a really pivotal film for me. And um, Chris Marker isn't going to come up again on this list, but his whole genre of essay film where he, um, Sans Soleil is another famous one, where he 
um, brings together his thoughts through a parafictional framework, but that's often grounded in documentary work um, are really fascinating uh, topics for people who are interested in documentary to get a hold of. And, um, of course, anyone who's listened to any of my film festival yeah. <laughs> from last year will have heard me rant on about Camera Person, um, Kristen Johnson's um, epic uh, exploration of her uh, work as a documentary cinematographer. Kirsten and Johnson. Kirsten Johnson, yeah. excuse me. Working with editor Nels Bangerter to cobble that into something yeah. that really explores what it means to be a person behind the camera experiencing all these things and creating a mosaic out of those moments yeah. that didn't fit neatly into these other narratives that creates its own narrative that seems more compelling than any of the narratives she created yeah. for those films. Although, to be fair, I haven't seen all of those films. Yeah, yeah and, and again, I think that's one that didn't strike mm. me as, as hard as it struck you at yes. the time. But yeah, it certainly was a fascinating look at, at um, her life as a cinematographer and being in all these diverse contexts, some of which were quite troubling. Yeah, I have this talk with, because I, you know, I, as I edit, I often work with people who are holding the cameras and I'm, you know, at times I'm like, how can you hold on to the camera when this is going down? How can mm. you not just put it down? And there's films that I know are on both of our lists where I just think it's extraordinary that yeah. they kept filming, filming. you know, mm. and, and the kind of the value of the work versus the detachment that you have to have as a human being is a very tricky thing. And you can, you can sit in the edit suite and think about this, yeah. but you know, when you're there in the real moment yeah. and, you know, I mean, some of the more extreme war photography films yeah. like Restrepo and yeah. which way is the front line from here, which could have made my lists, but yeah. didn't, you know, or certainly like an extreme of that. But and, also, and I guess yeah. trying to having a, a, a big picture look at where can I have the greatest effect in this scenario, in a mm. bigger, bigger picture of sense, I can do a little bit here, but it's really going to make no difference. But if I can put something out that creates awareness on a more sort of global scale, that might be of more use. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's hard and, to know. And yeah, well, it's hard it depends, to, yeah. depends on the situation. Obviously, if it's just all full-scale warfare, but if it's a particular person just needs to help in that moment, then mm. for me, that would be put the camera down and go and... But it's a person off the street or whatever, you know. Yeah, it, it is also what. How do you contextualize your job, and are yeah. you actually thinking about that as a human being? Are you yeah. thinking about that as an image, and are you so yeah. locked into the yeah. mindset of it? It's it's they're interesting and complicated. Yeah, very much issues, so. and camera person gets into some of those, and there's yeah. something that I think is a good thing to have in your mind as you watch documentary yeah. as you get into sort of the complications, because I think um, one thing about documentary is that a lot of people are just like oh, it's just somebody happened to be there with a camera. You often find yeah. in the best lists that documentary drop off near the end. Yeah. But in fact, it is so personal of building that relationship. I think of the film Quest that played oh, yeah. this year at the film festival, where yeah. it's somebody who followed um, this family for nine years yeah. and got this incredible intimacy. And sure, somebody else could have done that, but they didn't. And yeah. that story would not have been told. And, and, and some of them, where you think... How did they come up with the idea to follow that particular group of people, that particular person? Yeah. I mean, with a really already famous person, mm -hmm. yes, but um, in a context where someone is just kind of a, a local community figure. Yeah. Why, why, yeah. Did that, why did that person resonate with you? And that, um, yeah, Dino, which I played at the film festival yeah. this year, is another one that, you know, it's like, well, this is interesting choice of a person to follow who's on this sort of ASD mm. spectrum, and we're just kind of following along with her and it's just the filmmakers like look this person's compelling I want yeah. to tell this story um, should we talk about New Zealand documentaries before we get into our 
uh, directors as well. Uh, yeah, or, yeah, 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 let's do that. Um, yeah. yeah, because there, there were New Zealand documentaries that would, um, at least one, that would have been on my list, but I've already kind of talked about it on the list mm. before. So um, the first and foremost is Patu. Yes. Um, Merita Mita's um, documentary uh, about the 81 Springbok tour and the grassroots movement. Yeah, movement yeah. To, to resist... Um, and uh, stand up against apartheid um, here that you know nowadays it's like a, a flip story where everyone is like yep we're on the side of that we're anti-apartheid um, mm. the Springbok tour but at the time actually most people were get these damn happy protesters off our rugby yes. fields yeah. Um, and yeah and it's for her to be sort of embedded in that case but also at the same time stirring up issues of um, our own race issues in New Zealand in the midst yes. of this protest movement <laughs> <laughs> and, and and being a stirrer there, which she was sort of well known for being quite yeah. a stirrer, um, was is, yeah. It's just it's a fantastic, fascinating piece of cinema and and look at New Zealand at a particular time. And that was on my draft top ten as well yeah. because I think it's an uh, incredible film. I think it's an incredible example of collaborative filmmaking and yeah. that she worked with filmmakers from all over the country yeah. to gather this, but still gave it a central intelligence as a film. I think in terms of process, and I've written about this before yeah. in terms of the process of resistance it's a fascinating document yeah. and it's one of my um I, I think there's probably three new zealand documentaries that stand above all for me putting aside um uh hybrid stuff yeah. um i'd say on an unknown beach is yeah. the, the the second on that list and that um i've talked about before as well but yeah. the um film by um adam loxton and sumner agnew yeah. uh is uh, just an extraordinary experimental um, tripartite look at um, you know a man who's undergoing hypnotherapy over past trauma, a woman who's working on a trawler looking at damage to undersea beds, and Bruce Russell from the Dead Sea who's a noise musician <laughs> um, wandering around the ruins of Christchurch. And the, um, the implicit and explicit parallels between these three combined with the spe- specificity of the uh, imagery mm-hmm. um, I, I loved it, and I recommended it to some people who really hated it. So I can't um, <laughs> give it a universal uh, stamp of approval, but I strongly recommend um, anyone who's remotely interested in the limits of what documentary can be to check it out. And yeah. and you may come out saying, well, that's not a documentary. And well, I say, well, <laughs> maybe the problem is what you think a documentary should be. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and there's... Um, Chris Pryor and Marion Smith's The Ground We Won. Yes, which, which would be I, my third, yes. Which I only um, caught up with last night, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was one I missed at the festival and everyone said it was fantastic. And I thought, oh, I'd better get in a cinematic run. Mm. And I didn't. And then I thought, oh, I've got to catch up with it. And I, <laughs> I, know, I, know and I was how like, it goes, I saw it on your list. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I yeah. watch so I watched it last night. And it is, it's, it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. Um, yeah. They shot it in black and white. Um, and rural New Zealand. It's a look at... Um, masculinity and male culture in sort of small town New Zealand around a rugby club and a group of farmers in a place called uh, Rapparua and um, yeah man it's just one of those kind of documents where the filmmakers are are obviously really embedded embedded in and and the people on camera they clearly know the camera but they've got past the point that this is an awkward thing and they're just living their lives and it's very fly on the wall yeah account of sort of three main people um uh at different stages of life a young guy who's kind of new to the club and and he's kind of trying to find himself and kind of see his uneasy insecurity and trying to figure out who he is and trying to be the big man he's got a nickname called peanut because he's a small guy yeah. <laughs> um 
around these big farm boys um, and then there's an, an older guy with kids uh, with a couple of young kids and and solo, solo dad at this point well, although the kids are obviously back and forth between the parents yeah. um, and just that very different sense of life in rural New Zealand some of which reminds me of some aspects of my childhood I was never on a farm except at my grandparents over the summer but um, yeah life being a whole lot looser and and um, the values of sort of stoicism um, hard mm. drink the oh, hard the, drink the, oh those, those shots that look like they're out of the Turin horse <laughs> yeah, the yeah, morning yeah. after they're drinking, drinking and yeah. the fog's coming up and he and you know when the guy's on the track bike. oh god um, <laughs> and his head dips and he's like oh, <laughs> yeah, driving a, along this quad bike with a dog yeah. kind of weaving in front of him <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, the quiet sense of humor of that film oh, is just part yeah. of its lovely. And yeah, they just did embed in that community yeah. for months and months, and, and that's. I, um, I was just telling, but Doug, as when I came in this morning, that um, I was randomly googling my father, as you do, um, who's really not really on the internet um, at all, um, being older and the nature of his, his old work. Um, he, I found that he was one of three primary subjects in somebody's PhD thesis on post-war, so masculinity in New Zealand after 1945, so after World War II. Um, And uh, someone just looking at um, stereotypical masculine contracts in New Zealand of the the Kiwi bloke and the hard man. The man alone and all this, yeah. And and then looking about how that might have changed, particularly for people of that generation. Yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. I had no idea. And there were stories from his life that I'd sort of hadn't heard, but it was like very much that same rural context. And like, I mean, like the people in that story, I I started playing rugby from age five um, all through school, club rugby when I was um, living in Vicargill. Do some of the same drinking? I was never a big drinker, <laughs> and it's insane watching the the level of drinking that. Went yeah. on. I was like, wow. I mean, this this is like my cousins and stuff a little yeah. bit, but it's insane to watch it. Yeah, it's um. I uh, I got to interview them for Lumiere Reader because I saw the film and I was so impressed yeah, with it. I, I got in touch time. and. Cool. Um, uh, and they, yeah, they explicitly went into it as a study of masculinity, in part because that's understudied. And you know, they went for, to look at all the books, and they're like, "There's this Jack Phillips book," and it's like, "Yeah, that's kind of it." And um, and I think that's something that our culture is starting to realize is that the dominant culture hasn't been an object of study, and in yeah. part that's been a positive move to accentuate these, you know, under yeah. uh, valued other cultures but it also means that we haven't looked critically at the dominant culture and as we see things unfolding in america yeah. we see that that has been at our peril yeah. um and so i don't think the ground we want is necessarily like that extreme in what it shows but it is um fascinating and it is uh well and it's humanizing of it's people. affectionate yeah, yeah. and it and it, it is it is three-dimensionalizing yeah people where you know there is this kind of urban rural divide yeah. in news or kind of you know it's almost auckland rural really <laughs> um in terms of uh other uh new zealand documentary makers i think we both have a fondness for uh the films of florian Hammett, yeah, yeah um which you've written yeah, about this year in regards to spookers films, yeah, yeah um, um i did a profile on florian and most of his films um for um panograph punch um the year being one of those key ones that um that I caught the um, were you at the premiere premiere at, yes um, the Civic yeah it premiered at um, film festival 2010 we'll go with that I can't 2010 it. yeah something like that well one of those years um, yeah and Florian introduced it and he had a uh, couple of production crew and um, yeah it was it was a fantastic and electric experience but it's a really interesting look at one of those kind of fusion films or hybrid films of non-fiction where he 
there's a fiction story, but he's showing you the construction of it. So he's, yeah. he's, he went um, for a Harriet Friedlander, I think the initial one, the inaugural um, scholarship to go to New York oh, yeah. um, as a New Zealand filmmaker and just soak in the city there and then create something. Um, and so he created this, this documentary, which was basically him creating a love story um, from someone that he, I think he happened upon on the subway, or at least that was the construct. Um, but yeah. I think it's actually an, an actress, Marsha, I can't remember her last name. Um, Not going to be able to help you. Um, who, uh, yeah, he, he creates this kind of fictional relationship that they develop, but he creates a story with um, interviews with New Yorkers on the street. So he just goes up to people, pulls up people on the street in a very Florian way, says, hey, I'm making this film. This is what's happened so far. What do you think should happen next? And then mm. gets these people brainstorming in front of the camera and, and, and yeah, and has this kind of thing. Skype calls with his dad back in New Zealand. It's, um, for, for those listeners outside of New Zealand who probably won't have had the opportunity yeah. to see Florian Havoc film, I think the only one that has any sort of international uh, existence is his pulp, pulp documentary. documentary. Which but, is yeah. nothing like a standard music documentary no <laughs> but he's a six foot something incredibly gangly german, um, new zealander. Guy, german new zealander who always wears these peach slacks and um and had and and looks always looks like he has perfectly three days of yeah. beard and just rocks up to people and and is his gentle he's kind of friendly out way that, and, and he just mm. elicits kind of openness from just about everybody yeah. from the strangest people just opened up whom my favorite in some ways i think my favorite florian film is still uh land of the long white cloud Cloud, which oh, yeah. is um, set on in northern New Zealand 90, on the 90, 90 mile, mile beach, beach uh, and it's around this um, snapper fishing competition. Yeah, yeah, that that and um, Kaikoi demolition. Yeah. Um, are the two that I'm probably the most fond of. But yeah, I, you know, I've liked all of them to varying degrees. I, although I still haven't seen rubbings of a li- from oh, a live man, but um, I think um, he's just somebody who's perpetually chasing his weird little muse yeah. and um, he comes from an art school background yeah so studied at Elam um, School of Fine Arts and uh, University of Auckland and, and so they, yeah he, he kind of brings this kind of interesting sensibility and strange kind of artistic sensibility to documentary subjects and so he approaches them in a non-standard way where people might be looking for to tell a story or document somebody or something he kind of goes more into um, how does the environment respond to this thing yeah and yeah, context. and there's always there are often these yeah. yeah ornate recreations. You know, pulp has mm. this singing group doing yeah. a, a song in a cafe. Yeah. that's a, a local choir yeah. um, singing pulp's common people and yeah. various other songs. Yeah, in a cafe. Yeah, and um, and Spookers has you know these fantastical yeah. Oh, yeah, those moments sequences. in it as well. Yeah, and so Florian, um, it's not that he's pro- prolific, but he's kind of one of our regular um, non-fiction filmmakers who's um, putting out a diverse range of really interesting topics um, yeah. and I'm, I'm not sure how he kind of gets to those topics but they've, I mean fantastic from like this fusion thing on, on the streets of New York to um, having documented one of the final tours of um, Pulp and having, yeah. getting um, sort of very close to Jarvis Cocker and working with that and to very small town New Zealand stories Now well, speaking of stumbling into stories I think the oh, last yeah. one we'll mention <laughs> is uh, uh, David Ferrier and Dylan Reeves Tickled which yeah. um, it's funny actually all these Ground We Won and Love Story and Tickled, I, I saw all of those at the Civic, Civic premiere. Yeah. And uh, the Civic premiere of Tickled, which I think is probably the most famous internationally yeah. on this li- list, was an extraordinary. And, you know, there people often like, oh, it's a daco, I can watch it at home. And watching that as a mm. thriller slash comedy with an audience mm. was electric and um of course now the with full body theater cringe yes exactly <laughs> like, oh. um, so yeah david ferrier is a new zealand journalist who 
this an entertainment journalist, so just going to look for kind of quirky, weird stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. offbeat stuff for yeah, TV3. Yeah. His, yeah. Historically, he no longer yeah. works with TV3. So he stumbles across this male-on-male tickling society, and he, and he thought this was kind of strange. And then, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's worth saying anything more yeah. than that. Um, but you were, you were in particular wanting to mention this one yeah, yeah. as well as one of your top uh, all-time... Yeah, yeah, well, it's yeah. just um, from a story that sort of picks up as a, oh, this could be an interesting um, little segment on um, my nightly TV show, to him and um, Dylan sort of dived into the story because he got responded to when, when he when he um, sent an email to ask for some some questions to the company that had put up these um, competitive tickling videos mm. um, the response he got was so kind of off balance um, mm. and inclu- homophobic yeah, including homophobic slurs and obviously some sort of defensive hey you mm-hmm. know because um, they found out they looked him up and found out he was a homosexual mm. journalist from New Zealand and yeah. his kind of response to like oh, I'm not going to let this lie I'm going to have a look into yeah. this because this is a really strange kind of response to a, a pretty standard question um, and what they found was yeah dark and disturbing and they en- ended up kind of the film being about it's like it's ostensibly about tickling but it really isn't it's about um, power power and and, and um, manipulation and control and yeah highly recommended um, one thing one a last New Zealand thing that I'd like to just um, put a thing in for kind of like when we were talking about essay films is um, Plague Tim's oh yes um, of course yeah, of yeah that's a great film to mention yeah. um, and, and going back from that that he mentions um, in terms of sort of coming after that is um Sam Neill Cinema of Unease um, yeah. which is um, these two kind of uh, surveys of New Zealand cinema and what it is and, and where it comes from and, and, and how we as a, a nation um, create our own image in our cinema um, and so these are uh, out of the mist in particular Tim's film Tim Wong's Tim film Wong, yeah. um, is, is an essay film um, and it literally is an essay which is narrated by Eleanor Catton um, about um, Tim thinking about cinema in New Zealand and, and how it's sort of progressed and, and some of the parts that are not so widely known sort of mm. whereas now we're sort of mostly known for hobbits and what have you yeah but there's like kind of a lot more to our how we see ourselves and how we fashion our national image yeah I think it's a, a really extraordinary document I think it's freely available online yeah. as well yeah. so uh, out of the mist very worth tracking down and yeah. if you kind of want the foundational document of what how New Zealand cinema saw itself in the late 80s yeah. early 90s Sam Neill's cinema of unease is sort of the pre-Hobbit, pre-Whale Rider, yeah. uh, Man Alone, look at yeah. the um, classics of like Sleeping Dogs yeah. and uh, the Vincent Ward films yeah. and what have you. Shall we move on yep. to our top five documentary? Dr- yeah, uh, yeah and, and it's, I think it's actually more filmmakers that we have in common. I think we should both preface this, you know, obviously yeah. we both have our gaps in our viewing yeah. knowledge. I mean, I've got The Sorrow and the Pity sitting behind me, which I've never seen, which is, uh, you know, supposed to be one of the greatest documentaries of all time. Oh, wow. And, yeah, uh, it's one of the things that I realized when we when we proposed this, and I started sort of thinking, what are my, my um, favorite documentaries? And looking back at lists of documentaries was that I kind of came to documentary, uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe some people... Uh, documentary watchers from a young age I was mm. not, I was like um, go to the movie theatre and what's playing and it's you know it's yeah. um, Indiana Jones and what have you um, so I didn't really start watching documentary aside from kind of documentary television programs um, which I saw as a, uh, as a high schooler on TV on the weekends or whatever um, but movies as a theatre experience um, not until um, I started going to film festivals uh, in the sort of mid to late 90s um, but I think that was also um, starting to get into the time where I just don't think there was a huge 
theatrical circulation for documentaries outside yeah. of it, with the exception of um, Roger and Me and oh, yeah. uh, you know Michael Moore's films yeah. and the occasional Thin Blue Line or things yeah. like that, which we'll get to. But it was really that kind of explosion yeah. in the early 2000s where you yeah. had quite a few um, documentaries that broke through, and we'll talk about some yeah. of those during this, and that, that they became more common as multiplex yeah. fare, and that's faded to some degree, I think, mm. now, unfortunately. One thing I realized when I looked back is that there are a whole bunch of what are seen as the classic non-fiction films from since, um, what's the original one about the... Nanook of the North. Nanook of the North. From, from yeah. Going from Nanook of the North, um, Robert... Flaherty. Flaherty, going forward. Um, is that I haven't seen any of these classics. And right. Whereas a lot of my film watching, I've gone back and seen the classics. Mm. I, with um, documentary and non-fiction, I really have only kind of watch the stuff that I've come across and then occasionally if I've had a filmmaker that I like going back in there yeah. and so I am like woefully underrepresented in terms of older content yeah I've watched I've watched a few of them although I certainly have uh, my gaps like I have you seen Nanook? I haven't I've seen Man of Aaron which is another of his films oh, yeah. and I've seen I've seen bits of Nanook and uh, Louisiana Story and I you know I've seen um, some but not much of the early Frederick Wiseman films oh, you know yeah. there's um there's some giant gaps, and uh, Jean Rouche is another guy who is I haven't seen much of. That's an early French uh, documentary maker, oh. uh, and so there's a whole evolving history there. Mm. And then, and also that one of the things is that I think in general film privileges the feature film to yeah. some degrees. I mean, and you can say you know well the early documentary is mm. like the shot of the train coming towards the cam- oh, <laughs> camera, yeah. and there's this whole you know. Um, Lumiere era, yeah. you know, electrocuting an elephant, you know, there's all these um, uh, famous small films, but yeah. because so many of them are smaller, and you you know, even newsreels, you know, yeah. there's a lot of the um, World War II era newsreels where John oh, yeah. Ford and people like yeah. that are going overseas, and so because documentary as a feature format wasn't as well known, I think if you're really serious about being a documentary historian, you're often looking at these fragmentary yeah. uh Bits. So it, it, it's it's kind of a different thing from, you know, going into Sight and Sound's Top 100 and knocking yeah. off Citizen Kane and Casablanca yeah. in yeah. 2001 uh, and, and getting the, you know, the old classics that way. Um, and it, it can be, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of older films can be challenging in both their um, pace and in terms of their um, embedded values, shall we mm. say, in terms of what's socially acceptable or not. Um, and so if this, these lists veer towards the more present tense, yeah. um, that's not, uh, that's more from our ignorance, I yeah. suppose, than anything else. Um, having said that, uh, several of the filmmakers that we're looking at have a, uh, very, uh, strong track record over yeah. decades. Yeah. Um, shall we start with one that's at the top of both of our yeah, lists? Yeah, yeah. Errol Morris, um, is a fantastic documentary maker and has been working what since the 70s I think uh, yeah Gates of Heaven was Gates his first Heaven, yeah. feature which I think uh, <clears throat> came out late 70s early 80s yeah. somewhere late around 70s, there I'm pretty yeah. sure okay. yeah. Uh, and yeah he we both had sort of several films mentioned from him I mean the classic one that most people know about is Thin Blue Line which was that did that when 1988 and it was famously disqualified from the Academy Awards oh. because it had recreations and they considered it not a, a documentary, documentary. Yeah, yeah. Um, which would be astonishing by Today's, present day yeah. circumstances uh, and uh, and that was uh, a film where the 
where the film, the making of the film, um, led to uh, uh, a change in. Uh, well, he it, so the story of the Thin Blue Line is that he um, and it just to get into Errol Morris, he was actually a private detective huh? um, prior to becoming. I don't think a I knew filmmaker. that, and that makes sense. Yeah, well, um, so one of the, the uh, one of the films, films. Uh, yeah, yeah, but one of the films that his that I want to talk about, and we'll get back to the Thin Blue Line, but after Gates of Heaven, which is about a dispute involving a pet cemetery, yeah. his second film was going to be a film called Nub City in uh, Florida and about uh, people who were. Uh, cutting off their own limbs in order to collect on death and, or accidental dismemberment insurance, but they were getting on purpose dismemberment insurance. Um, it turns out that it's not—it's really not a good idea to try to get people who are willing to cut off their own limbs uh, to defraud an insurance to talk on camera about it. So <laughs> that film fell apart. But while he was in Florida, he um, discovered all these sort of interesting side stories and they yeah. coalesced into Vernon, Florida, Vernon, Florida yeah. which is um, a fascinating yeah. little Wonderful look movie. at. And, and I think that's one of the things that I love about Errol Morris is just how fascinating the things he finds fascinating are yeah. that he'll just see something there that nobody else will and dig into. And the thin blue line was about a, um, a killing case, and a yeah. man who had been jailed for it that he suspected, um, had been wrongly imprisoned. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, the, um, investigation that Errol Morris did, uh, during the thin blue line led to, and I'm not going to remember the person's name, but um, him being freed, freed from prison. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, later, I believe, he actually sued Errol Morris in order to get some of the money from uh, the Thin Blue Line, line. <laughs> um, which is one way of showing gratitude. Um, thankfully, that didn't deter Errol Morris from making <laughs> uh, more documentaries. Um, and it's been interesting to see his style shift over the years yeah. because as he's moved into um, this, you know, kind of more and more Interatron is mm. the um, system that he's used for a long time where he um, basically sets it up the normal problem with documentary filmmaking is you either have to look at the camera or, the or look at the person who's yeah. talking and so he came up with a way that he could project his face in, front of, the in front of the camera so that you're talking to the person and so you have this direct address to the camera that's also direct address to the person, the, yeah. the person. and that um, so that uncomfortable down the lens yeah. um, you know really um, he honed that in a series called first person yeah. and then um, fast cheap and out of control which yeah. is uh, maybe my favorite by him, oh. uh, which is a very peculiar. That's one of the ones film. I haven't seen. Oh, it's amazing! Oh. It's got uh, per people who work in AI robots stuff. A guy who's a topiary creator, a person who studies naked mole rats. I'm going to blank on the fourth, but it very much builds off um, first person. Yeah, which yeah. We, let's talk about first person a bit more because you saw it in a film festival context, yeah. well, right? First person is a uh, was it? It was it was a television series. Yes. Yeah. So it, it had um, I don't know how many episodes all up. I can tell you just a moment. Maybe like twelve or something like that. Eleven in the first season, six in the second season. Okay. Yeah. So New Zealand International Film Festival. What they did was they put several episodes in, in a particular screening, then screened it on yeah. a cinema screen. Uh, the ones that I saw were Stairway to Heaven, which was the um, story of uh, Temple Grandin, someone on the um, ASD spectrum who yeah. um, has worked on all sorts of fascinating things, and she created 
this humane sort of system where she she looked at the way that cattle were taken and how they were stressed out and how that changed and I, I, she was probably contracted by the industry to, to do this and she thought well they're getting stressed out if they have a less stressful kind of entry point to the um, execution well, maybe they'll be less stressed out right um, and so she created uh, a circular sort of thing so there were no hard edges they weren't kind of what's happening they just sort of like gently walking around the circle and it changed the way the thing and she also yeah. used cattle presses and there's fascinating footage of her getting in the cattle press and just making her feel <laughs> safe and happy and yeah yeah, yeah and there's been la- there was later a fictional film made about her I think called, yeah. that was uh, some I can't remember the actress uh, but won an award for oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that a few years back um this one that was probably the most fascinating to me is um, called Eyeball to Eyeball, which is this guy, Clyde Roper, who is uh, a marine biologist who's... Oh, I presume he's a marine biologist. I don't actually know. I presume that he was. Um, but he was obsessively fascinated with giant squid. And so to the point where he's being interviewed about just... The, he's being asked about giant squid. And he goes, if I had the chance to get up close, and even knowing that I'd get crushed, but I could see the beauty of this thing and record it, I'd do it. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking into his face as he says it, and you can see this kind of ecstatic look as yeah. he kind of disappears into this idea. It's, it, it's insane. Um, and then obviously they have some pictures of giant squid, which is kind yeah. of fascinating as well. But the person is so fascinating. There was another one that I remember the least is called I Dismember Mama, which is about this guy who was um, fascinated with cryogenics and was looking at ways that he could freeze, looking to be able to freeze himself. But he, he froze his mother's head in the hope that at some point, uh, and illegally did it, sort of had it hidden in a complex somewhere um, <laughs> so that in the hope that cryogenics would um, advance, pr- to, advance the point, to the yeah. point where he could um, reanimate her brain and put it in another body yeah <laughs> um, and the last one was um, The Little Grey Man which was about uh, Antonio Mendes who um, Argo was based oh, off right. on okay. one of his experiences who was an ex-CIA operative who spent a lot of time in um, Cold War Russia and Moscow uh, and basically just talked about how spying people think you know they've got the whole James Bond movie version of spies being these debonair people with lots of skills and he's basically if you're the kind of person who stands in a supermarket queue and the checkout person kind of doesn't even see that you're there and you almost get missed sometimes you would be a great spy the whole idea mm. of just blending and, and, and being <laughs> forgettable and that kind of being the opposite of what we think have been conditioned to think why movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I own the, I actually own the DVD with all um, yeah. the episodes in it, and when you brought it up, I, it just brought back so many great memories. Um, a few that you haven't mentioned. Uh, there's one called The Killer Inside Me, which is about a um, woman who had dated successive serial killers. And um, <laughs> one of the um, one of the great things about Errol Morris's films is initially you don't hear his voice off screen, yeah. and as he's gone on, he's got more and more of his mm. voice in. And in this one, it's like. Why do you date serial killers? And she's like, that's such a lame question. There's one featuring a fellow who we'll talk about later named uh, Josh Harris, who uh, did um, an experiment called We Live in Public, and that was an early documentary about his. There's one amazing one with Denny Fitch, who was a pilot who uh, his plane had a series of mechanical failures, and so he was going to have to... um, crash land it and yeah. by it, all the accounts on the ground said that he would die it's just it's no spoiler to say he doesn't die because the yeah. interviews with him but um how many people survive and all of that's just a gripping tale and then there's one uh, called one in a million trillion which was about a um guy who uh loved high school so much he kept moving to other cities and masquerading as a 17 year old to do it again and then eventually became obsessed with who wants to be a millionaire it's a very digressive fascinating but it's these great insights into that and it's also he's developing this technique with the interatron where he's not just using this 
down the camera, but several other angles yeah. as well, and bringing in public domain footage from 50s yeah. B-movies and things like this to create this landscape that then populated And you can see some of, of these techniques films. that yeah. he's kind of unearthing a little bit in his latest Netflix series, Wormwood. Yes, um, yes. Where he kind of shows some of that, pictures of some of that in Terratron setup, and yeah, it's, it's interesting. And there's a, there's a whole spectrum there as, as well of um, his yeah. uh, more political documentaries like The Fog of War, Fog of War yeah. which uh, is extraordinary. The Unknown Unknown, which I still haven't seen. It's uh, it's it's good. It's it's Donald Rumsfeld Donald isn't Rumsfeld, as, yeah. as captivating as Robert McNamara, who's yeah. the subject of The Fog of War, because um, he's just a bit more opaque. Yeah. In that, um, but I, I, I do think he's interesting. Uh, standard Operating Procedure, procedure. as well, oh, which I was Abu Ghraib is... Yeah, a, the, um, one of the fascinating things I found about that was his use of soundtrack. He got Danny mm. Elfman, who kind of know from um, Tim Burton soundtrack, yes. and he played. He creates this Burtonesque kind of fantastical soundtrack to, to accompany this footage of these terrible photographs and these yeah. people, and, and it just it plays so nicely against what do we believe is real, what is made up, what's happening. He's kind of talking about the photographs, but what's happening outside the frame, mm. and yeah, just this this way that he kind of provokes thought outside the obvious on these um, on these often quite well-known circumstances and then, then in, the, in like something like tabloid where it's oh, like I love very tabloid, little known yeah. um, circumstances that are just crazy yeah and he's had a, a sort of a second career as a New York Times columnist of yeah, late where he's yeah. written about a lot of interesting things um, and uh, two of those have made their way into books A Wilderness of Error and uh, Believing is Seeing which uh, Believing is Seeing caught so a lot of his essays about photographs and truth and what it means to be a true or false photograph. And if you're a fan of Errol Morris's filmmaking but haven't explored beyond it, I particularly recommend that book. A Wilderness of Error is more about um, a specific crime that and investigating his take on that yeah. and, and going into that investigation. Well, we won't cover all these filmmakers yeah. quite as extensively. Yeah. Now you you mentioned uh, Les Blank and yeah well um, I I had not seen any any like it's a name that I've known but I've not seen I'm not sure that I've seen any of his films right. but um, I caught up with Burden of Dreams care of Autumn Events last yeah. year where um, film festival put on Fitzcarraldo and then yes. Burden of Dreams is the making of Fitzcarraldo yeah um, and just the crazed kind of ambitious. <laughs> Fitzcarraldo is, yeah, Werner Herzog dragging a boat over a, a mountain in the Amazon with Klaus Kinski there, and that doesn't even get into the half of how crazy yeah. it is. And, and how much, um, you know, this, this kind of grand artistic vision, but how much of it is just kind of personal madness and um, vanity disregard for life and safety of the people involved and, and yourself, and mm. yeah, and uh, yeah, it is one of those kind of wonderful journeys into madness um, Burden I saw Dreams. Burden of Dreams long before I saw Fitzcarraldo because a friend of mine uh, who plays in, still plays in a band called the Linus Pauling Quartet that's um, one of Houston's longest and most esoteric uh, <laughs> uh, drone rock uh, bands uh, just recommended it to me as this portrait of devoted insanity mm. and you know there's this bit where Herzog is talking at the end yeah. about the jungle and how um, yeah. crazy it is and how evil it is and he's yeah. like but I do not hate it I love it you know and, yeah, and, and now that he, now that Herzog's <laughs> kind of become this pop culture character it's yeah. hard to recapture how weird that was to run yeah. that videotape in 1995 yeah. or whatever it was and be like who is this guy <laughs> you know it, it's, uh, it kind of in, in some ways is a similar vein to like Hearts of Darkness which I haven't seen actually oh, that's yeah, a big yeah. omission of mine um, but with that layer of 
like whereas Hearts of Darkness is that same kind of this is kind of mad vision pushing past this is Francis Ford Coppola's yeah. Apocalypse now yeah. directed by his wife yeah. Eleanor right yeah. um, and, and kind of pushing past that bounds of reasonableness to make a to get your cinematic vision on screen and yeah. whether we sort of think that's acceptable nowadays is another mm. kind of story but then with that extra added layer of Werner Herzog does seem to be this kind of <laughs> other world slightly mad character even you know if you took him out of that context he'd probably still be Yes, <laughs> and yes. now we see that all the time, you know, when he's narrating about the kind of fatalistic tendencies of penguins and <laughs> yes, yes, and, and, he, and he does seem to have become a bit self-aware to yeah, a degree yeah, that yeah. can be frustrating. But um, a funny connection actually is that Les Blank actually directed a documentary called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. Oh yeah, um, yes. and and the reason that Werner Herzog yeah, eats his shoe is because Errol Morris finally finished his first Gates film. Heaven, yeah. um, and 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 Errol Morris was so so. Werner he was, Herzog had um, they'd met somewhere, and Werner I think Herzog, he was at his film school or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and and he was very taken with Errol Morris and thought this is someone who really mm. needs to be making films, and so he challenged him to to get this film made yeah. and said if you get it made then I'll eat my shoe in the end. Yeah, but also er- Errol Morris was originally going to make a film. Yeah. Yeah, t- I have seen yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, was Errol you can Morris- see it on YouTube, I think. Oh, pro- I'm sure yeah. you can. Um, uh, Errol Morris was originally going to make a film about Ed Gein and the um, Plainfield uh-huh. uh, murders, and then um, he got very mad at Werner Herzog when he made, uh, I think it was... Uh, uh, Strosek and oh, accused him of stealing a landscape because it's that it was that same sort of uh, North Central American oh, yeah, yeah. kind of uh, void that he was working in. Um, the funny thing is, those films that Les Blank has become popular for is are really a little bit off center from like kind yeah. of his main thing. Which and there's been a lovely collection put out by the. Um, Criterion collection called yeah. Always for Pleasure that has 11 or 12 of his short films and I've been working through those and by short I'll mean like 20 to 50 minutes yeah. and um, they're just these joyful films mostly like him going to Louisiana or um, similar places and hanging out with people who are just cooking stuff or musicians yeah. you know there's lots of like the blues according to Lightning Hopkins yeah. there's a film called A Well Spent Life with Mance Lipscomb you know yeah. and going to these little Zydeco clubs and just Filming people he finds interesting and just just hanging out and being what is Zydeco? with them. Uh, oh, sorry, Zydeco is an accordion-based dance music that's uh, famous in Louisiana. Buckwheat Zydeco is probably its most famous practitioner. Um, and uh, Paul Simon sort of riffs on it on the last song on Graceland. That was your oh, mother, yeah. and you can kind of hear that accordion oh, yeah. riff is a very Zydeco Bayou kind of. Hmm music um and it's sim- there's cajun music which is from the french that came yeah. down and they they use fiddle and a uh, different kind of accordion yeah. and then the zydeco is uh, the african-american culture oh, version okay. of that and there there's similarities and yeah. spending seven years in houston you heard a lot of cajun and zydeco oh, yeah. especially if you decided to cross over to louisiana every now and again um but if you watch Les blank's film you can just sit there and watch all of this unfold and he and he'd also he lived in the bay area so he would go to music festivals there and make yeah. films and there's a film called Garlic is as good as 10 mothers where he just goes to Gilroy California for the Garlic Festival and mm-hmm. and which is actually a lot of people love that film I I got a little bit annoyed with the 70s hippies who were yeah. claiming the utopian powers of garlic but um <laughs> I just I just loved um again like it was just that where this person has chosen to set up shop and take yeah. you into you know half the time I'm like I want to be there. I want to yeah. be eating that food. Mm. Yeah, should we go to Werner Herzog, actually, now that we've yeah, um, yeah. invoked so, the man's... Uh, I'm trying to think. I probably saw 
Yeah, I, th I think I saw um, First Person was the first of that group of films. So I'd seen Aaron Morris film before I'd seen a Werner Herzog film. Right. I think I came to Werner Herzog really late, only via Grizzly Man. Right. I'm pretty sure. Um, so I, I hadn't seen any of his classic stuff. I had no one to introduce me to that at that age, you know, when I was younger. And Grizzly Land was, um, again, it's just, it's Werner Herzog pushing into uh, uh, just a fascinating figure. And so Timothy Treadwell. Timothy Treadwell, who yeah. um, was a, a wannabe environmentalist fascinated with protecting bears, grizzly bears up in Alaska, the Alaskan um, frontier, and but with really no idea <laughs> and very little sense and very little um, actual idea about the nature of bears. But yeah. he had a camera and he took a lot of footage of stuff and then he ended up... Yeah. You know, it's, yeah and, but as a document, it's it's fascinating. And I mean, the way Herzog puts put it together, together yeah. and does his own thing with it is, is pretty interesting. Which was famously quite quickly. I think it was edited in something like 30 days. And wow. I think he was filming some of it uh, at the same time. He's... Wow. Um, He's often quite quick with his films, yeah. which I th some of his recent films, I think that's to their disadvantage. Yeah, yeah. I um, I think the first Herzog film I saw was um, uh, Little Dieter Needs to Fly, yeah. which was in the late '90s and was a new release then. And yeah. I um, didn't know much about Herzog so I, other I than seen having that, but seen I saw the dramatized version Rescue later Dawn. On Rescue Dawn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I would strongly recommend Little Dieter Needs to Fly Over Rescue Dawn. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, the the fellow who it's about Dieter Dengler is this German who grew up in the wake of World War II having his house being bombed and had all these visions of becoming a pilot and mm. of course you know <laughs> post World War II Germany wasn't really given the opportunity to have an air force yeah. um, for various reasons that should be obvious and so he eventually um, managed to get to America join the American Air Force fly into Southeast Asia, and I'm blanking now on whether it was Vietnam, Laos, or Cambodia. Yeah. And on his very first mission, get shot, shot down. down. Yeah. Um, and then have an extensive uh, escape. And so this little theater needs to fly actually takes him back to those places and oh, wow. he, like and puts him in like mm. you know sh shackles as he's walking through and he's telling his story as these befuddled contemporary Southeast Asian folk are acting as the guards and it, it is this um it, it is very emotionally uncomfortable yeah. of, of him reliving this but also D Dieter Dengler has this spirit where mm. you know it, he's okay with it but are we okay yeah, with, with it, it? Yeah. Uh, and then um and there's also some flights of fancy in the film where early on he films Dengler at a um, aquarium in the Bay Area with these jellyfish, and he talks about these dreams of these jellyfish, and it's a beautiful shot. Mm -hmm. And Herzog made the whole thing up and told Dengler to say it. You know, yeah, they were never yeah. his dreams. And and Herzog has this whole philosophy of the ecstatic truth, yeah. and you can make things up. Um, but yes, yeah, so as a result of that, I got really fascinated with Herzog's uh, filmography and discovered some really interesting little projects there's one called land of silence and darkness which um when i was living in portland this little film society got a 16 mil print of in and it was about um this group of deaf mutes which you know are complete or oh sorry no blind and deaf people yeah uh so what a fascinating topic to try to actually hmm. visualize life for people like that and um uh, and that that's a really compelling film. He made a film called Lessons of Darkness, which was shot in the um, uh, the 
uh, oil well fires in Kuwait, yeah. but is actually kind of recontextualized into a science fiction film mm. to some degree. Uh, there's... Uh, brain explode. Uh, there's a film with Reinhold Messner called, I think it's The Dark Glow of the Mountains, and it's a famous one where uh, Reinhold Messler is this mountain climber, and um, he and Herzog had showed up at the base of like K2 or something with all his equipment, and um, he wanted to get something real from Messner, and so he asks a question, and Messner starts giving an answer, and uh, Herzog turns to the cameraman and says, Pack up, we're leaving. And he's just like, I'm not watching you do your TV act anymore. And um, because Mesner saw one of his friends die on a previous climb, and he's mm-hmm. still climbing. And um, and eventually what he gets out of Mesner is, is wildly emotional because, mm-hmm. you know, Herzog is that extreme. You know, yeah. he's the guy who did La Souffrir, where he took Ed Lachman, the uh, cinematographer of Silence of the Lambs, to this island where a volcano was supposed to go off. Yeah. Um, and so overall, I'd say, you know, I mean, Herzog has made, obviously, a lot of great drama films, yeah. but a lot of his documentaries, I think, are just as vital, yeah. if not more so, particularly in recent years. He's one of the few filmmakers who has successfully bridged those two forms of narrative and, and, um, and non-fiction, fiction and non-fiction. Yeah. Um, although Agnes Varda, who yes. um, we're about to mention, is, is another one of those. Yeah. Yes. And um, now you... Um, and in fact, uh, the French Film Festival is coming up, I should say, oh, yes. uh, in March. And one of the films that they're bringing back is uh, Faces Places. Yeah. Um, and you saw this at the film festival? Yeah, yeah it was fantastic. And, and yeah. I think it was my first Vardo, actually. Right. Um, okay. And yeah, yeah, just... Uh, I'm co-directed... I keep saying just Vardo, but it's co-directed by J.R., who's yes. a um, French uh, photo artist. Well, he's, <laughs> he's an artist, and he, he does kind of pastes up massive... Kind of ephemeral artworks of um, large format photos that he takes, that he blows up and then yeah. pastes. So like wall size. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so they're travelling the the French countryside and just looking at um, stories from from local people and um, creating a moment of celebrity for a, just an everyday person um, and everyday issues. It's, it's, it's a beautiful film. Yeah, and, and it's some, and it's just you can Favada who's on camera a lot. They're both on camera a lot. It's just this flow of joy coming out of this elderly lady. It's quite something. She she's a, an amazing, irrepressible spirit. Yeah. I um uh we Panograph Punch sponsored the um, Faces yeah. Places screening at the festival, and I got to write a um sort of it. I didn't get to see Faces Places beforehand, but it's sort of a primer intro to Varda, yeah. Varda and her amazing career from being um the quote-unquote grandmother of the French New Wave having made her early films before Godard or Truffaut or any of those folk and then kind of having been a bit overlooked in their wake despite the strength of Cleo from 5 to 7 and uh, Vagabond, not Vagabond being a bit later, uh, Le Bonheur and a few others at the time and having gone on to build this 50-year uh, career um, despite, um, you know, she was married to Jacques Demy for a while who made... Um, Lola and Bay of Angels and mm. a few other films and, and often that uh, overshadowed her career but she kept quietly making films in the background and when one film would fail she'd make another yeah. when um, she got pregnant and couldn't leave her house she um, got a 150 meter extension cord and shot in her neighborhood everything that was in 150 meters and made a whole film like that Uh, and when she was in LA and she was trying to get a drama film up and it couldn't go she uh, made a film about the murals in LA while Jacques Demy was making his film and and so that spirit is um, 
great. I think. Um, Gosh, it's almost like um, five abstractions, but uh, but it, it, it kind of is. But yeah. you know, I, but I actually think filmmaking is like that. I was yeah. talking with um, another filmmaker who's um, ha- been having trouble getting their second film going, and it's kind of like actually the process is so challenging, especially when you kind of think all mm. films should be made a certain way, yeah. and so a lot of it is finding ways to change the process to work yeah. for you rather than saying, oh, well, I need the money to do this. That's and that's, right. and that's you know, spirit with spirits like Herzog and Barda, it's yeah. like, I'm going to find a way to make the, yeah. this film. I mean, Joe Swanberg's a different example of somebody yeah. who, um, I mean, he's a dra- drama filmmaker, but he's like, I'm not going to worry about a script. I'm not going to worry about if I have a good camera. I'm not going to worry about rehearsing. I'm just going to say, we're going to hang out for three weeks and I'll shoot each day. And if you get drunk the night before, then your character has a hangover this morning. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you have a certain amount of bravery and Swanberg's yeah. made some terrible films, yeah. but he's also made some quite good, good ones. Yeah. And he's made so many that... You yeah. know, the, on balance, it's uh, he's got a good been worth it well, for him, and, and, yeah. and it's his life. You know, yeah. he's doing what he wants and what he loves. It's yeah, well, exactly, and that's. I think not, the thing is, sniffed it. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I know that there's been a lot of potentially great filmmakers who have um, found themselves stymied by the process, yeah. and so I think that's a really important thing for any filmmaker that has an enduring history is finding a way to make things work for Herzog it's been that he's owned all his own films and so now he has enough income off his previous 45 years of films that he can fund things combined with you know for instance lo and behold his uh, internet documentary was funded by some internet startup and things like that so he does have you know other interests coming in um that's a little sideways. Anyway, Varda is an amazing spirit. I really love The Beaches of Agnes, yeah. which is a film prior to that that's sort of summatory of everything to date, oh, yeah. as well as um, The Gleaners and I, which is probably her biggest name yeah. film of the 21st century anyway, where she followed a group of people in France who sort of made their living going through the trash and finding other people's trash being there, um, yeah. what they survived off of. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. All right, shall we um, get into our... Uh, oh, one, we've, we've got one more left to, uh, of, of the aged uh, filmmakers, uh, Mr. Frederick Weissman. Oh, um, yes, yes, sorry. Who, oh, um, yes. is around we the should, same age as Agnes Varda, <laughs> who should not be overlooked, no. and um, who's yeah, kind of steadfastly um, done sort of the same sort of film for about 50 years now in terms of embedding into uh, an organization yeah. or um, a you know, a location or, yeah. and... Um, just observing it, um, and he hates all the terms like direct cinema or cinema verite. Like yeah. he just he he does a lot of interviews where he complains about what people call his work, and then you ask <laughs> what to call it. Um, and there's so many legendary films of his I haven't seen, from Titicut Follies yeah. to High School, yeah. Meet, uh, Welfare. There's um, yeah. quite a few, and um, but it's extraordinary that he's just kept going, and a few of his recent films have been up there with anything he's ever yeah, done. Yeah, again, this is another one person I came to quite late, and I haven't been back through his um, over about, a, at Berkeley was the first one I saw, um, yeah. which is what, a bit over four hours, or just yep. under four hours. Look at Berkeley, um, UC Berkeley, which is you know, a famous sort of uh, hotbed of protest and, and um, innovation, intellectual innovation in, in the States. He just uh, looks sort of at, from a current point of view at the institution, but he goes amongst the student body. He goes amongst the the support and admin staff, all the you know the the lawnmowers and, and yeah. the ground staff, military groups that are doing practicing maneuvers on campus. There are um, process groups, the campus police, 
the academics. Um, mm. There's so many topics just looked at or allowed to breathe on screen yeah. and given time to breathe that it's, it's a very, like, not you wouldn't say complete, but a very full picture of an institution. And then he doesn't explicitly look at things like its history of protest and stuff, but he he covers them organising mm. a protest and, and, and looks at the kind of the culture and the history of that and how that infuses mm. current current day decision decision making from the staff yeah I, I just it was endlessly fascinating and what kind of film can you hear someone talking about um, the problems with groundskeeping at a university campus <laughs> and then suddenly an academic talking about dark matter and then yeah. a, another student doing a PhD project on um, robotics for disabled people who have lost limbs it's a four hour film but I was not at all I was just engaged the entire time yeah um, yeah and uh, National Gallery uh, is another film that's quite similar as well where um, you kind of have this uh, giant organization and yeah. you have everything from the boardrooms to the people who hang the art yeah. to the um, student groups that come through and the docents that talk to them to the people yeah. in the basement who restore the art and the sort of the complications of these institutions and he doesn't do interviews no. he doesn't include archival footage no. um, he sometimes cheats like in Crazy Horse which is about a strip club in France yeah. he films other people filming an interview yeah, yeah. <laughs> and things like that but in general like there's no there's no exposition there's no voiceover it's no. just what he observes during his time embedded there and mm. then it's this sort of mosaic like yeah. structure of put it, putting it all together and finding the order that these moments go into um, to create a fulsome sense of it and yeah. you know it is a lot of what he finds interesting um, there's a film called The Dance that he did that was mm. about the Paris Ballet and there's a scene um, in it where they're on the roof and there's uh, beehives on the roof and they have honey up there and um, uh, famously uh, he was interviewed and said why did you um, include that scene he's like I wanted to show that the opera had, you know, honey, the bees on the roof, you yeah, know, yeah. and it is that kind of, these are details that are interesting, and this yeah. is how I see this world. And as you, you know, there is always going to be a fragmentary moment to that. So there's mm -hmm. this kind of fascination of the exploration of institution, and um, Brennan and Lingham has actually um, interviewed him a couple times for oh, Lumiere as well, so those are good reads to yeah. go back to. Um, he also has a great sense of editing and musicality. Yeah. Um, there's a film called Boxing Gym, which oh, yeah. is, um, some of his films are quite daunting in length. Belfast, Maine, I think, is six hours. At Berkeley's four, National Gallery's three. But Boxing Gym is a great start. It's a svelte 78 minutes, and um, in part because a boxing gym isn't a very complicated institution. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it actually opened up the appealing of boxing in a way I hadn't seen before, just because he finds the musicality of the training and yeah. the footwork and the hand work on the, the bags yeah. and all this kind of stuff um, and mixes this in with the, you know, so the qu quotidian uh, efforts of running the gym and yeah. the finances of it and the locker room conversations and the training and all of these sorts of things. And it it is, um, and I think one thing we get used to a lot in documentary is uh, kind of there's this whole genre of advocacy documentary, yeah. isn't there? That kind of film. issues filmmaking, yeah. and that and that the filmmaker has an agenda. And I do think all filmmakers do have an agenda. Um, and certainly, what somebody selects and takes out, you yeah. know, his new films about the New York Public Library, yeah. Ex Libris, and choosing to make a film yeah. about a public library, yeah. and is, is in and of itself kind of a taking a stance. You know, I'm, yeah. yeah, and and including the things that he does in it. Um, but it's not so obvious. It's not like a club where people are cutting things a certain way to, to create a 
here's a here's the bad guy, here's the good guy. Yeah. Here's the URL to donate money yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's uh, stay informed and get on our mailing list. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's these um, things with documentary like impact producers that they have now, and it's and it's like um, he's just going to stubbornly keep doing what what he does yeah. um, with Zippera Films, and he's um, you know this giant body of work that just keeps growing, and he's yeah. in his eighties, and as long as um, he can stand, he'll do sound and be there, and he'll be there with a camera person, yeah. and they'll get their stuff. Um, so yeah, so that's our, I guess, prelude. Maybe we'll yeah. take a quick break and then um, we'll actually get into our top ten list. Yep. Cool. And we're back for either uh, part two or a whole new episode, depending on how we edit it. Um, We're going to try to burn really quick through our uh, top tens here. Um, A film I always talk about, I'm sure I have on this podcast before, but uh, Adam Curtis's Century of the Self. And um, some of these, like with Errol Morris, you know, there's this crossover between TV and film. This is not one I've seen. Um, I think I've only ever seen his hypernormalization. Yes. Which is very recent. Yeah. um, And he did Bitter Lake recently, and it felt like a kiss. Um, He's done, and he's got a 20, 30 year. Year, uh, history with the BBC. He's British, isn't he? Uh, he yeah. is British, and he does these documentaries that are voiceover heavy that lean on archive footage, and I, they're increasingly getting a bit artsy in his um, yeah. thesis yeah. building. But um, Century of the Self is a bit more focused on how the advertising industry in the 20th century worked to build the notion of the self as something that could be revealed to the world through the brand choices that you made yeah. and the, the purchasing choices that you made. And this idea that I think is very intrinsic to us now, you know, we talk yeah. about Apple people or Windows people or yeah. Apple or Android people yeah. or um, Nike or Adidas or choose your brand. And even if you think you're immune to it, you eventually dig down enough. It's like, oh, you know, I'm not a Budweiser person. I'm a craft beer person. It's like, well, that's still yeah. reflecting your personality through a consumer product choice. Yeah. And it was it was such a pivotal documentary for me, and it's one of the few that I think I've chosen that's really in a social issue, changing the lens through which I look at the world. Yeah, that sounds it's, fascinating. Yeah, it's it's really it. worth your time. Yeah. Um, so, what's your first one? Uh, my first one is um, probably less known. Um, it's a short, in that I think it's probably just a little over sixty minutes, or maybe a little under, called um, Highway, or at least that's the um, translation by Sergei. Vortsevoy. Um, I've never heard of this film or this filmmaker. It played as one half of a double feature. Another one called... It was Highway and... Gosh, I can't remember the name of it, but the other one was another Russian short doc about an older lady and and a sort of a love story gone by. But anyway, Highway followed a family who were like a travelling circus. That was their job. Right. In very rural um, Kazakhstan. And so it's all shot out and these massive rural roads they're in this old bus that's a crank handle start they've got like the worst kind of homemade uniforms they go to these little not even one street towns in the middle of nowhere and they perform and so dad has this act where he holds like a bit in his mouth and and holds weights and then people right. press on them and it's like you know how much can dad hold with his right, teeth yeah. um, and he's not the youngest guy and then the kids do these like really bizarre um, little tricks that are really 
to a modern audience who's used to sort of international acts coming right. to towns unimpressive but I guess if you're living in the arse end of nowhere and you have nothing <laughs> they, they, but they subsist this sounds like my experience watching La Strada actually <laughs> of like oh we're supposed to be impressed by this <laughs> but they subsist and that's their it's, it's their life and they travel around this bus and I, I, Lord knows how um, this Dvortskvoy found these people and got us, got on board their bus with them and travelled right. but um, yeah it's, 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 it's just fascinating as a this is how some people live in the world and it's so divorced from my reality and fascinating but at the same time they have their little family dramas that you can see going on at one point they find an ailing eagle on the side of the road um, that's kind of looking like it's dying and so they bring it onto the bus and they nurse it back to health and eventually release it uh, right it, yeah it's just it was it was one of the first documentaries I saw in like 99 when so I was, it was that pivotal in getting you into yeah, documentary, yeah, documentary and yeah. I was just like this is fascinating and it didn't have an agenda as such it wasn't about an issue it wasn't pushing you should all get out and be um, circus people in rural mm. Kazakhstan <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but it was just here's another part of the world and life that you've never experienced before and it was fascinating yeah to continue on with the following people around on strange road trips I'm going to mention um, the Emperor's Naked Army March, Marches On by Kazuo Hara. Um, and this is uh, this was a really important documentary, historically speaking, that I didn't get around to seeing for a long time, but Roger Moore, uh, not Roger Moore, Michael Moore, acknowledges... Um, that <laughs> one of those it, famous Moors. Yeah, it's one of those famous Moors. <laughs> acknowledges that it's huge influence on his own filmmaking. And it basically, it follows this person who is in the Japanese army who um, is very aware of certain atrocities that were carried out by the Japanese army during World War II. And he is going on this tour across the country um, to try to get um, these people to admit to their atrocities, which I won't detail because we're still doing a breakfast time record, Mm -hmm. and um, apologize for them. And when he fails to do it, he starts attacking them. And they're all, you know, they're quite old at this point because, you know, he's in his 60s or 70s because, you know, he was a soldier during World War II and this is 85 or 87. And it is just this series of um, these intense confrontations. And it's, um, you know, we talked earlier about that kind of, the the act of being there. And um, yes, um, but this is where the act of killing is perhaps a bit more... uh, comes at it sideways a little it more. It comes at it sideways. This yeah. is this is just a head-on, like yeah. following somebody who's just a steamroller trying to achieve justice in this situation that's... Um, culpability! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and you have people, like, calling yeah. the police while this old man's, like, <laughs> hitting this other old man. Um, oh, and, and, and it's... Um, oh, wow, that sounds like an incredibly yeah. stressful watch. <laughs> it is an incredibly stressful watch, and it is an incredibly difficult watch because of the complicated morality of all of it because you recognize that he is at one level morally in the right and that these these horrible things that have been done have never been taken to account but at the same time yeah so what's your uh, number two I'm kind of going through chronologically in terms of um, the film production date but I think these are all Almost all things I've seen in cinema. But the second one I didn't, I saw this DVD or VHS um, because I'd heard about it um, and haven't been a Gilliam fan. 
a film, a documentary film called Lost in La Mancha by yes. um, Keith Fulton and Louis Pepe, made in 2002. They followed Terry Gilliam's efforts to get his... It's the man who killed Don Quixote. He's had the rights, I think, at least two occasions, and they've yeah. passed because it hasn't been able to get funded or made. Yeah. This one, it was funded, it was ready to go, they started shooting, um, they were in Spain, I think, and then natural disasters, government issues, all conspired to basically shut this thing down. They had injuries yeah. of lead actors. It was um, John, John Rochefort. Yeah. yeah. It's just a fascinating look at this crazed visionary trying to get this thing made and you know just clawing his way along and failing and and it's to his yeah. credit that he just let these guys keep rolling as his um as you can see him trying to hold his hold himself together and hold this project together and it's slowly splintering and it yeah. and his sanity is kind of being tested supposedly it's finally been made he posted something on facebook yeah. last year saying that he's uh, at yeah. least completed filming i don't know how the oh, editing is wow, really? going so um, i knew that it was coming up and that he that, that he was having another go at it but i didn't yeah, realize it was actually done yeah. We'll see. I mean, his recent works haven't been getting a lot of positive. Yeah. I haven't seen the Zero Theorem. For I watched instance. it a little while ago, and I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I get, I guess I can see why people didn't like it, but I didn't think it was terrible. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, filmmaking is such fertile ground for documenting Entry, as yeah. well, and I mean, obviously, there's been so many great supplementary yeah. uh, films that you could look at. Um, well, see, Amer- that, this reminded me. Bit of my dreams reminded me of my experience of watching this. Yeah. Um, Have you seen American Movie? No, I haven't. That's, that's another classic that um, is uh, really worth looking at, and I should have considered for my list, yeah. um, which is uh, Chris Smith's 2000 look at um, the making of a film called uh, uh, Coven, not even oh. though it's <laughs> not Coven because it rhymes with oven, and yes. uh, Mark Borchardt, who's a um, Midwestern filmmaker with big dreams and perhaps not quite the talent to match, but a bit of spirit, and... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a it's and it's a lovely film about you know friendship yeah. and uh, dreams, and it actually kind of fits in a best worst movie vein. But um, the film that I chose for my filmmaking film was a film that I only recently discovered called a Quadacook Vampire by uh, Per Portabella from 1971, and it's sort of a fringe thing as a documentary. He shot it on the set of uh, Jess Franco film that was a Christopher Lee Dracula film, oh, right. um, and it's so it's sort of this parallel like it's kind of a documentary but not really because there's no voiceover and it's just um and this very experimental soundtrack and very little source sound and so he's kind of creating this atmosphere does it feature through these it's it's about 70 minutes and um and um so he'll be creating these moments but they'll be of like set dressers spraying the fake uh cobwebs or it'll be a take of Christopher Lee and then he'll break and stuff like that and it kind of it creates this sense of the uncanny and it's almost like a horror film that's a documentary but it's it doesn't function in the way a horror film should but in fact because of that because it's not going to the playbook that you expect it almost functions better that way and and this question of what's avant-garde and what's documentary is one you know I mean I I was looking at documentary on Letterboxd and a lot of Stan Brackage films came up and I'm like I consider that more avant-garde, but yeah. you know, if if you want to make the argument, then sure, I could include a lot of those. But yeah. this one, I think, is legit. Like, well, 
he was on the set, he was documenting it. Yeah. It's not you don't exactly learn how the film was made, but it's kind of this yeah. adjunct work. And um, and I downloaded it off the internet because super super obscure. And then Second Run put out a who's a UK label just put out a beautiful DVD and Blu-ray. Oh, nice. So it is actually accessible now to the world, at oh. least the world who has multi-region yeah. DVD or Blu-ray. And yeah. so I strongly recommend if that description sounds even remotely interesting to you to check out this luminous black and white obscurity. Wow. Well, my next one is a 2006 film, which uh, another one I saw at the festival. I think the same year I saw um, Grizzly Man, actually, uh, which is called Manufactured Landscapes. That's by a um, filmmaker called uh, Jennifer Bykwile, who recently did... Oh, wow. <laughs> I just pulled my book about Manufactured yeah. Landscapes off the wall. So Manufactured Landscapes uh, is Jennifer Bykwile's documenting of the photographs of Edward Bukinski, which is subtitled the book Doug Schiff pulled out. It's <laughs> fantastic. And he, he is a, um, a Canadian large-format photographer who goes to places that with a... The landscape has been um, significantly impacted by human manufacturing um, and large-scale manufacturing. Each segment has like a close-up of one of his large-format photos and then slowly pulls out, and they're incredibly detailed. Yeah. They're insanely gorgeous photos. It's so glorious on the civic screen. Yeah, and then she, she, she pulls out, pulls out, pulls out, and then goes into the process of making these and talking to Batinsky and, and uh, looking at this whole idea of how, how we're all complicit um, and how he as a photographer is complicit. Now, like He goes to the silver mines in Canada and basically saying uh, his photography relies on silver nitrate. The car that he uses to get to places um, requires battery mm. uh, and fossil fuels. And he, he said he'd never force you to take a point of view. He, he just puts it out there and sort of says he finds that more um, useful in terms of like he definitely has a point of view but yes. he doesn't come out with it and say this is right this is wrong and so like when they go to things like the um three gorges dam project in china people are like oh no we don't want international photographers taking pictures of this and painting us badly and they go no no look look at his book and they're like he'll make it look beautiful and he yeah. does he makes yeah. these, these massive projects look beautiful and people are like oh yeah okay <laughs> um but, but yes, when it's like yeah. crushed cars yeah. or, you know, um, or, 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 like, or, or like the, um, yeah. there's a place in China where they dispose of old technology, mobile phones, and now their entire water table has been poisoned by mercury because been, people are paid to break apart these parts and these um, devices that we are all using every day and um, that get updated every two to three years. This is where they go. Uh, and now they have to get water trucked into their province because the entire province water table has been poisoned by mm. mercury from these old devices. Yeah. yeah, which sound, and, and and that sounds so didactic and yeah, telling, yeah. but it is but such a film yeah. that's um, committed to uh, presenting Te- rather than telling. telling yeah, and and, it, and, it's, and it's beautifully presented, and it is it's confronting. Yes, and it's also um, bike while finding cinematic yeah. ways yeah. to you know use dolly shots and other movements yeah. oh, to yeah, take yeah. get another lens on what uh, Bertinsky's doing. I'm pretty doing sure this is the intro shot just stuck in my head. There's like the factory, uh, there's a right? literal like five or six minute um, dolly shot going through this factory in China where they make just doesn't stop massive which is like mass production of all sorts of things so it's a huge manufacturing plant and it's it's not like one of these sweatshop situations it looks very clean working spaces look look good and reasonable the staff look they don't look harried or anything like that they're just working away it the, just the scale of it is insane this dolly shot going through this factory and it just keeps going and going and going and going and there's people working on myriad bits of small electronics um 
crazy kind of stuff that you'd find in a two dollar shop and mm. then more sort of bigger things that you'd think is probably for large um, companies yeah it just the scale of it is insane and it, it gives you a sense of the scale of what our consumerism is yeah it's one of my favorite films that i've yeah. never bought because it seems almost criminal to look at it on a small screen but it'd yeah. be amazing too bad i've got the dvd but okay. although um i say that actually I, it's been going around a group of friends and it's <laughs> currently with a friend who we keep forgetting to trade it back <laughs> um i'll mention a film by a photographer as well the salt of the earth or oh, excuse yeah, me about yeah. a photographer yeah. um sebastian salgado oh, directed yeah. by Another German filmmaker of Vendors who uh, has yeah. like Herzog and, and co-directed um, by him and the photographer's son. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's true because I think the photographer's son started the film yeah. and then Vendors came on to help with it. And it's probably in some ways there's moments of it that are probably the weakest of any of the yeah. films I'm mentioning. But the um, uh, Salgado has done a vast diversity yeah. of photography. Some uh, not dissimilar to the Bertinsky things that we're talking about yeah. um, with the human impact of large open minds yeah. and things like that to um, wartime photography. And um, this is a film that landed with a real emotional gut punch to me because it does, I think it does a lot to question, um, you know, what is the impact of art? We discussed at the very yeah. beginning of this, like, is it more important to hold the camera? Or is it more important to make, get, put down the camera and make the difference? Yeah. And I think, once you're confronted with mass graves in Rwanda, yeah. um, I think you know that doesn't become an academic question. question it becomes yeah. a visceral one, and the balance that Salgado has found in his life and the way he found that, not to spoil any of the film, but was a really potent one for me. And, yeah. and a second viewing actually took away a lot of my qualms on a first viewing. I think yeah. I still think it's uh, you know there's a little bit of diversions that are the nature yeah. I think of this sort of pass off from yeah. one. Um, filmmaker to the other and this kind of balance between the family story that might have been told and the the concerns that vendors has but it Mm. also in some ways gives you these alternate ways into this story so i highly recommend yeah uh, same it's as brutal as it is beautiful visually stunning and just a really yeah really nice dig into issues around documenting atrocity and and, de- yeah. and having to deal with it kind of thing exactly yeah what's yeah. your uh, next uh, my next one is probably another little known one um i've called, not heard of um it. film called blind loves and it's by a um slovak filmmaker called um Juraj Lehoski, which um played at film festival in 2008 i believe ah uh, that was the year that i barely saw anything because uh, yeah. i was yeah. um and and kind of it's, it's a doc fiction fusion film focused on blind protagonists living in um slovakia and in particular, a couple who are looking forward to having a child and what it means to raise a child as two blind parents and them thinking about how, how they're going to deal with having a child. And it sort of goes through their daily lives. I think the, the, the husband is a professor of some sort and the, and the wife might be a nurse. I can't, I, right. Or no, one of them might be a piano teacher. Gosh, it's mixing up in my head. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating look at life for people of different abilities and and the kind of the stresses they're thinking about like what if our child is a seeing child right how do we understand their world are they going to understand us are we going to be able to parent them in the way they need there's um there's a film called sound and fury are you familiar with it i've heard the title yeah it's it's about the deaf community and it's about um the question of cochlear implants and whether people choose to be deaf or not and that's a really fascinating look at Mm. it similar topic although without the hybrid sort of yeah. nature of it and also um, My Flesh and Blood is another one that I quite like that was about a family yeah. with various physically disabled 
children, and um, those are two, if you're interested in yeah. filmmaking that looks at differently abled people, yeah. recommended. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to mention something a bit more uplifting because yeah. we've been going with uh, yeah. some heavy stuff. Uh, Stop Making Sense. And uh, music documentaries are a whole uh, yeah, thing yeah. unto themselves. I've seen this and it's apparently the music documentary. It is the music documentary. It is stunning. I mean, I love talking heads, heads yeah. but I think that even uh, without that, you have to respect the craft that goes into it in part because it's an impressive show, but also just um, the way Jonathan Demi builds it. I yeah. said the when Jonathan Demi died last year, I put on "Stop Making Sense" before work, and I was just going to watch a bit of it, and I just got really carried away, and I was late to work because um, his shot choices and um, eventually the, the it doesn't spoil anything to say that it starts with. David Byrne alone on stage doing Psycho Killer with a guitar oh, yeah. and a boombox playing the backbeat. Yeah. And it gradually builds to what's, I think, a 10-person band yeah. uh, by the end of it. And so his attention to what these side players are doing, mm. um, which is often for quite lengthy times, and the oh. sense of community that builds on, on stage... Uh, and the inclusiveness, which is a feature of a lot of Jonathan Demme's films, like mm. Ra- Rachel Getting Married, which I only recently caught up with, mm. really featured that... Um, is gorgeous, and so I, um, uh, you know, again, you, you, once you get into music documentary, there's a whole world of like, well, do you include the last waltz? Do you include Don't Look Back? Mm-hmm. You know, the list just goes on and on. But um, I, I decided I had to put a flag down for this one over all of them. Nice, nice. Yeah. Now, uh, just to take us down again, <laughs> a film um, that I saw at 2008 at uh, in the strange section of the film festival. I remember Ant saying at the time. This is one of the few films where he actually uh, came out in tears um, and he wasn't mm. embarrassed to say it. There's a film called um, Dear Zachary, a love letter to a son or something, I think. From, from a father to, to a, a son. son, yes. And it's by an uh, American filmmaker, Kurt Kuen. And it's this heartbreaking, tragic, almost twisting crime story narrative of mm. a f- guy who is documenting the loss of a friend. Um, so Kurt Kuen, um, is talking about a childhood friend and they used to make films together and they've got all this archival footage of little films they used to make and then you know, his friend dies under circumstances and, and yeah and yeah and it's a letter to the son who will never know the father father yeah yeah and yeah and then it just goes from there and dives down <laughs> and yeah it's it's the feel bad movie of the yeah. century and and, um, and I don't know about the quality of the filmmaking is Cohen comes from an advertising background yeah. and the film is at points baldly manipulative yeah but also the intensity of the subject matter is such that yeah. he's not. I mean, it is a horrific yes. story, and, it's, and, it's and it raw. deserves its. Yeah. You know, it is somebody who is very talented with the manipulative powers of the medium, yeah. Yeah. Um, telling a raw emotional story yeah. and taking the viewer on that journey with all of the outrage and yeah. emotion that it deserves. And you can see that you can feel the lack of distance. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's naked and it's powerful, yeah. and it is, and it is because of what it reflects about yeah. Canadian laws. And, and well, then later but, on, uh, um, I think in 2012, he um, made a follow-up short about the campaigning of Zachary's parents to try and uh, get a law change in Canada around um, some things that are brought up in the first film and uh, and the success of some of the outcomes. So, yeah. Kind of, okay. Yeah. I won't even try to uh, stay on topic with that one. Um this question of if documentaries are real or not and, and what counts, I wanted to uh, 
mention, which I could have brought up with Blind Loves, actually, but uh, F for Fake, Orson Welles, 1973. So this um, is a title I've heard of, but I know nothing about it. So F for Fake is a film that is largely about forgery and fakery, and it focuses on a gentleman who forged paintings, and through okay. that, uh, Wells knits a story of other famous fakers and forgers, and and uh, and then the film itself takes on a question of what is real or not, and um, and of course Wells is one of the great fakers. You know, I mean, he would famously like carry around like a um, window frame in his trunk or something, and so like, and then he'd just be like, oh, we'll get grab this shot very quick, and we'll set the window frame up with a light like this, and this will be in interior. I mean, film is all about yeah. Fakery, and um, for a long time it was my favorite Orson Welles film. Um, it, in some extent, now I think that that is kind of a, I don't know if obscurant choice is the right one, but it's very different from a Citizen Kane or yeah, a Touch yeah. of Evil or things like this. But it is just a um, <laughs> fascinating, playful, uh, fun film that I uh, recommend as a really different look at what documentary is and what it can be and what yeah. it can explore. Okay, so my next one is was mentioned by you before in the, in the first, first person, person series, um, but this is the feature version done by a filmmaker called Andy Timona, who had been known at that point for Dig. Yes, um, uh, this is uh, We Live in Public. So that was about Josh Harris. Uh, Josh yeah. Harris, yeah. So he he was um, a bit of a megalomaniac in some yeah. ways, an egomaniac. Um, but he has also been like right at the heart of some real kind of ahead of the curve advances in technology. So he he set up this thing, a very early kind of um, reality show. What you know, the kind of thing that turned into Big Brother and what have you, where he set up a webcam in his own relationship yeah. with his girlfriend. They and they basically lived on camera and had all of their stuff. And then they got people um, via the internet um, commenting saying. You should do this. You should do this, and then and then that when they yeah. have an argument, or at one point there was a there was a scene where he'd lost his keys, and then he got the um the internet crowd watching the the video stream to um say, does anyone know where I put them? And, <laughs> then, and then they found them because people said, oh, I, I think you, it's under the sort of kind of hidden under the fruit bowl or something like that. But the whole kind of sense of voyeurism that comes with that, and but, but he did this prior to like um broadband, and yeah, so people yeah. on dial-up connections downloading these or you know watching <laughs> sort of these staticky things. images, yeah. 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 <laughs> And then We Live in Public was um, this um, art installation that he set up in um, New York in the early O's, I think, or late 90s, with, with some famous artists, and um, they lived in this what they called the bunker, which they built. People had these sleeping pods, and they, were, they signed away that they were going to be filmed, um, having sex, going, having showers, and Ani Tanona signed on to document this, and she'd documented some other stuff for him. I don't know how she came upon him, but she just she's one of those people that that will sit with something for years and so I think this film was put together over a period of 10 to 15 years documenting bits and pieces as, as she kind of thought this guy is just endlessly fascinating yeah. but she didn't know she said she came um, with the screening at NZIFF and did a Q&A afterwards and I ended up having a little chat with her and um, and but she, she said um, in the um, Q&A afterwards that she um, found the thread of her film the, when she first saw a Facebook post where someone basically posted about what they had for breakfast right and she was like we've reached this point mm. that Josh Harris said we would where people are just endlessly interested in themselves and want to know the banal details of their lives yeah. and she was like oh, yeah, I don't know if this is ever going to take off and then suddenly 
this is life for everyone every day now. Status updates, Twitter posts, yeah, now Instagram Instagram, pictures yeah, of my yeah. food. And 2009 would have been before Instagram, but it'd be fascinating yeah. to go back and yeah. see that again now that, yeah, you yeah. know, it has become so pervasive and yeah. live, live streaming is something, you know, and stories that you yeah. can post on Facebook is just an everyday thing. And so, yeah, this whole idea of, of um, self-voyeurism and, and putting ourselves out there and then this character who was kind of involved in this and his kind of shadiness and, and he's interesting as an individual, but then just the the kind of ways that it looks at how society's sort of turned itself into this yeah. entertainment machine for free kind of and privacy has kind of which used to be a massive thing it's almost gone by the by you're selling your, your <laughs> private details for a free app basically. yeah totally um, yeah. Um, in, in terms of the flip side of um, connectedness but um, I guess also equally um, exposing as a film that year at, at the film festival called Alamar by a guy named Pedro Gonzalez Rubio who's a very obscure um, Mexican filmmaker. No, I don't um, remember that one. It, it, it really flew under the radar, and it's a beautiful film. It's um, um, it follows a teenage boy whose dad lives on basically a hut in the um, ocean, and you know is goes out fishing, and it's very um, and so he's spending the summer there, and it, his mom lives in Europe, and yeah. they um, and so they have a little bit of the start of it. Um, ha- happens setting up the relationship and the, the parents have separated but he goes to live with his dad for the summer in this very idyllic setting and um, and it is just an unrushed observed picture of this life and there's a little bit of drama daco crossover but it's um, it actually inspired me to create this list on Letterboxd called Gentle Cinema which oh, yeah, has unexpectedly yeah. become the most popular thing I've ever done on Letterboxd and <laughs> will be and then has strange people posting things about how uh, Asghar Farhadi films are gentle but um, <laughs> it is just um, it, it is such a lovely portrait of yeah. this not entirely idyllic because yeah. it doesn't shy away from some of the more complicated aspects of it but, you know, unrushed, different lifestyle that could only be observed by somebody being really embedded mm. and living in it and not trying to put any more message across than this is a way of living. Come watch it. I loved it. Um, it's hard to track down, but there's a Region 2 DVD that's incredibly cheap that you can get off Amazon.co.uk. Um, Alamar. Yeah. I highly rate it. Oh, wow. Well, that would go quite well with next one on my list, I think. Kind of a short doc. I don't think it, I think it comes in... But over an hour, maybe something like that. Um, yeah, called "Only the Young," which is by Elizabeth Mins and Jason Tippett. Uh, and I think we talked about it actually a long yeah. time ago for one of our doc uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, episodes. Yeah, because it was at Doc Edge, um, yeah. and it's uh, in 2012. And so this is uh, a really kind of lo-fi look at um, life for for a couple of um, friends, American teens um, from. Think somewhere on kind of California way. Um, they, yeah. they, although they look like they live in kind of smaller town, it, it has a yeah. sort of a smaller setting, smaller f- town feel. feel to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're they're skateboarders. They're teens at school. They're kind of slightly off the edge of um, this popular crowd, and it's just about friendship. And then when relationships spark up, and how that kind of messes with the dynamic of the boys. And then they're involved in some sort of Christian youth group, and then they're skateboarding and. Um, I remember it's beautifully shot. Oh, Lots yeah. of locked off shots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And for a kind of a small documentary, it is beautifully shot. It's this um, the the light and colour in it is really nice as well. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It, it's kind of has this oddly cinematic feel for a for a very small short doc. Um, yeah. 
and it's and it's got this really intimate feel of these uh, of these of youth and and uh, and and you're a sucker for coming of age stories, yeah, I'm a sucker so for yeah. Of age stories. So it has that kind of feel to it, but you know, often I don't know. I don't think I've seen documentaries with teens like this where it doesn't. It, it, it kind of highlights that awkwardness of youth without them feeling exploited. Yeah, exploited yeah. or awkwardly like the cameras on them, you know. But yeah. you're watching these kind of things of like young, young love and relationships, and and then when those break up and how people deal with that, and, and then friendships that kind of feel like they're splintering because of that, and then yeah. but how actually it kind of comes together. It's that size naturalism. Yeah. that's really uh, yeah, and in- yeah. interesting. It is a lovely film, and I yeah. certainly highly recommend it. Um, one that I'll mention now, we mentioned uh, The Five Obstructions before, and I'll just go back to that for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, some days I think this is my favorite Lars von Trier film, even though you know oh, most yeah. people would say Breaking the Waves or Dogville yeah, or Melancholia yeah. or what have you. But um, he uh, challenged filmmaker Jorgen Leth, who had made a film called The Perfect Human yeah. that had inspired him and uh, had inspired a young von Trier. And uh, in recent years leading up to the film, Jorgen Leth had... Uh, been in a creative fallow and not producing anything and so he challenged Jorgen Leth to make remake the film five times but it, each time created a different obstruction for him yeah, and yeah. so the film documents the five obstructions that Von Trier makes and how he addresses those and I think the first one is to have no um, shot longer than 12 frames yeah. and, uh, and it continues onward and so it's this mix of uh, filmmaking daco that will be interesting to yeah. that but also this kind of um, friendship, mentorship, this complicated relationship yeah. between the famously complicated Von Trier and his inspiration, who has now been outshone in yeah. Danish filmmaking by Von, Von Trier. Trier. And I think any, any creative person would be inspired by it, and even mm. people who don't consider themselves by creative, I think, would find it interesting and touching in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating. Yeah, I, yeah. I, love, I love that film. Uh, so um, my next one is Rodney Ash's um, look at um, obsession. Uh, he, he's, he's often looking at obsession, and he has a thing for conspiracy theories. This one is called Room 237, yes. and I mean, it's got a longer title, I don't remember. And it's about conspiracy theories about, about Kubrick's The Shining. Um, and so there's all sorts of, all manner of kind of theories around The Shining that that, that people have espoused in various times and I think he goes through um, like nine different conspiracies um, I can't remember there's quite a few and they're yeah. all it, it, I, I found the I found the film fascinating I hadn't heard a lot of these conspiracy theories but I also found it interesting because he he Rodney Asher clearly finds some of the stuff he, he doesn't do it just to laugh at the people right. he, he lets them present their ideas um, and then just lets you lie with them and some of them are quite compelling and quite yeah. Like you, you, you find, well, I found myself watching, going, oh yeah, okay, I can see where that yeah, yeah. going from, but then kind of going, settle down, because <laughs> yeah. you know that actually someone's sort of dived down a rabbit hole and they've just not stopped, mm. um, haven't been able to pull themselves out. Um, but like this mix of people who are so convinced uh, of a certain kind of like some people would think that um, this was an apology for um, Stuart Kubrick having been involved in fake moon landing, right? Footage. Yes. Um, some saying that the um, that the film was. Um, that all the um, Native American iconography in it, and like the Indian soup cans, and all this kind of stuff, um, that that it was all um, uh, filmed on Indian burial ground, all kinds yeah. of things that people dive into, and it's fascinating just looking at how humanity kind of fixates on idea, and then how you can kind of build bridges between 
facts to create a narrative that yeah. suits what you wanted. It's an interesting dual uh, yeah. bookend stories we tell that was yeah. the same year at that festival yeah, of yeah. how narrative is shaped. And I know yeah. some people hated it because it's not a straight up making of Daco. Yeah. But it is it is a really interesting look at that. And it does walk this tightrope of like just when you think it's gone too crazy, something yeah. brings you back into, well, why is that there? Yeah. How does that work? I know there was yeah. one thing where, where people had set up a screening of The Shining forwards and backwards at, yes. at the same time and then, and then just played them simultaneously and to see because um, I was convinced that um, Kubrick had made mm. um, another storyline that you could only tell by watching them and seeing where they matched up <laughs> <laughs> they are in madness yeah. lies <laughs> yeah um, speaking of madness um, I'm cheating with my ninth film because yep. I'm going to give a whole series to um uh, the Maisel Brothers uh, documentation of uh, Christo and Jean-Claude's oh, works. Yeah. And uh, the Maisel Brothers are probably most famous for uh, either Gimme Shelter, Grey Gardens, or The Salesman, which yeah. are all works discussing in much more worthy of discussing in much more length than I'll give them right now. But um, these uh, six films that they made, uh, Valley Curtain, Running Fence, Islands, Christo in Paris, Umbrellas in the Gates, um, are an amazing... Um, look over the course of 35, 40 years um, at the work of an artist who works at this incredibly large scale yeah. and it, the process and how much of the process is about it's kind of not dissimilar to the Wiseman films in some yeah. way of having meetings where you have to get consent yeah. and, and learn about American democracy and all of this and then these large scale works gradually taking shape or in some cases not taking shape and the frustrations that go along with that and also this relationship that builds with the filmmakers over that series of document documentaries and you know by the end you know you know Christo saying hi to them and um, and and Christo is somebody who's famous for these large works he wrapped the Reichstag he created these giant umbrellas in oh, yeah. California he's he circled islands with pink fabric in the Florida Keys wow. and so he's done these really larger than yeah. life sort of things and and sort of has this kind of crazy um, reputation. So to be on the ground with him mm. and get that different human human yeah. sort of interaction is a very strong counterpoint. And I really loved. Um, there was a great box set that I think is out of print now that uh, put the first five films together. And so to sit with those and and watch them unfold was a really nice um, thing because the relationship between documentarian and subject is rarely one... Um, I mean, some films that I famously haven't seen are the 7-Up films, the 14-Up, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. But, you know, by and large, you don't get to see that relationship build over time. So yeah. um, that's they're really lovely, and I strongly encourage uh, anyone who can track those down to look at them. Nice. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Are your number nine? My number nine... Well, okay, my number nine was... I, I think it got a mixed reception, but it was just a really, really different kind of immersive non-narrative uh, experimental cinema look so this is Leviathan um, not the Russian drama right but the um, the 2012 maritime documentary um, by Lucien Casting Taylor and um, Venera, Verena Parabell Parabell yeah um, they've done a few kind of films where are they based they're based at Stanford are they uh, no it's an east coast school I think oh, it might okay. be Harvard uh, Sensory, Sensory oh, yeah, Ethnographic yeah, Laboratory, laboratory. who have it, done yeah. um, that group has done yeah. a lot of other films including the yeah. Iron Ministry and uh, Monica, Monica Mana Monica. which yeah. played a few years yeah. back Yeah. so um, Leviathan was a bunch of GoPros I think on a fishing boat I don't know if it's a deep sea fishing boat but a fishing boat that's out um, ocean going trawler yeah. yeah and it's, it's visceral it's immersive there's no um, narration. There's there's no sense of 
anything other than this is life on a working fishing boat. And yeah. I've, I've worked as a deckhand. I can't remember if I've mentioned before. On my, um, on my pops, I know you have. My, yeah. pop, my pop's been a fisherman for a long time. Uh, he, he used to do long lining up um, Lee Parkety Way. I, I've worked a couple of summers as a deckhand on his thing. So I, I, boat life, smaller boats, but boat yeah. life is something that I, I'm aware of. And the viscera of that, like um, having to, like I had to bait a thousand hooks with um, three day old, slightly rotting pilchards and, you know, and mildly unsettling seas. And, in, in some ways, I think some people found it kind of overwhelming because mm. the, the, there's this constant sense of movement, which made some people ill on a big screen, which I can understand. Yeah. Because the boat's moving all the time, the cameras are just sloshing all over the place. Some of them are like off the side of the boat; they get amongst seagulls, so like they go dip yeah. down into the water and they're flying up in the air, and seagulls are battering around them. And then suddenly you're um, watching fish guts come off the bilges; they're getting processed, and it's like just going out the side of the boat, and all this kind of grotty yeah. guts and stuff is coming past you. And then, and then suddenly you've, you've got this shot of staff workers and like just in the smoko room with um, the deadliest catch playing yeah, on the yeah. TV which is quite amusing and it's just a, a look at a way of life how some of the stuff that makes it into our food um, and onto our tables into our restaurants gets there. actually yeah. gets there um, I just found it so immersive and in that space like it, 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 yeah it's one of those things where the, the term immersive is used <laughs> yeah. but, but this truly is it was like you were on this boat rocking around nothing was said you were there was the water it was dark there was guts and yeah yeah I don't know. it's um it was a film i was really looking forward to because i'd seen a clip from yeah. it online that i absolutely loved um and i think maybe i need to give it another go because yeah. often when i get really excited yeah. about something um, there was the some reality ugly bit, footage in it the, as well. yeah yeah i think i it's hard. It's hard for me to. I think maybe just playing at the end of the film festival and having yeah. been hyped for it. I don't think um, the whole film lived yeah. up to quite that. And I also seen their feature Sweetgrass, which oh, is yeah, yeah. Um, a sheep sheep herding documentary, yeah. which actually I probably prefer all and up. And it's a, it's very much more pastoral, mm. um, but still very observational and yeah. immersive in its own ways. Um, but I would like to give it another look, and it's certainly worthy of checking out and immersing yourself yeah. in. Um, I'm going to end up my 10 with um, another cheat of Two City Symphonies. Um, Man with a Movie Camera by Ziga Vertov um, is sort of considered to be a seminal Russian city symphony. And the question, is it a documentary or is it a drama? There's very much sets itself up to be self-referential. You know, this yeah. starts people going into a movie theater. There's scenes of it, it being edited internally at the time. So I struggle with calling it a traditional documentary, but it's yeah. often uh, slotted into that. Um, but it's a great film. It's so, um, it's one that, like, when I went to South Seas Film and TV School, I showed to a bunch of people, and they're like, oh my gosh, documentaries excite, you know, yeah, yeah. old films can be cool, you know, and even though it's a 1929 film, especially if you show it with, like, an Alloy Orchestra score, wow. it still has a constant engagement and interest that um, carries through in 2017. And so I, I definitely think if you want to kind of explore older filmmaking. It's a great entree hmm. into that. Um, and that City Symphony is something that so many filmmakers over the years have taken forward and kind of, you yeah. know, building things out of that. Jem Cohen's done some beautiful stuff hmm. uh, in his short films. Uh, and the film that I wanted to mention was uh, one that I've just seen recently, a Chinese film uh, from 2009 called Disorder by a filmmaker named Wai Kai Huang, yeah. who um, was looking at contemporary China and managed to gather footage from a number of different filmmakers. Uh, and it is just a draw-dropping 
look of like where did this footage come from of contemporary China of you know hordes of animals walking on highways and just non nonstop there's just a bit of like what is happening in contemporary culture and that's uh, those two sort of represent this poles of how yeah. uh, filmmaking looks at society. Um, so I recommend both. And what's your final... Uh, okay, so my final, I'll just do a, a quick cheat as well. Um, it's basically um, documenting protest and dissent, um, yeah. but from two, two scales, okay. the personal and the en masse. So yeah. the, the personal one I'll talk about is uh, Jafar Panahi, his last two films. So he's um, Iranian filmmaker who's been sort of censured by the state and told nominally under yeah, house arrest. Yeah, yeah, and nominally yeah. under house arrest, can't make films. So um, he's made a couple of non-films. Um, yes. Famously, this is not a film, and then his last one, which was um, Taxi or Terror and Taxi, depending on where you're from, played at um, Film Festival in 2015. Um, and this one is where he is kind of protesting the strictures of the um, governmental regime by making these films. So here he, he has this conceit where he's pretending to be a taxi driver and he's got a dash cam and well a bit more than a dash cam but um, that's the conceit um, and he's taking people on actual journeys and then like documenting their discussions and arguments about politics and life. He's got a scene stealing um, niece who um, comes in and, and, and is um, fascinating right. and there's someone who gets picked up from an accident and has to get taken to the hospital. There's a couple of old ladies who are talking politics and, and, and <laughs> grumping about the government and various other things and then his, um, I think, uh, producer friend who comes in and is talking about some meetings that she's been in and yeah, it's just a fascinating way of, of kind of bucking the system and saying, well you know, I might be banned but Screw that. Yeah, I'll keep yeah. going, yes. Um, and very inventive. The other one is um, uh, much more large-scale. It's Sergei Loznitsa, who's um, another person who does that kind of fiction, oh, non-fiction yes, um, yes. straddling. Um, and uh, his documentary, Maidan, um, which documented the um, civil unrest and protests in, in the Ukraine um, yeah. uh, not so long ago, is basically a camera moving through and set up in the mass protests in the big city square um, where there are just thousands of people and then there are big fires there are um, clashes with the police there is um, all sorts of chanting and singing mm. and the camera just observes and you can see small groups of people singing folk songs together who are coming in from the um, provinces there are uh, the big person giving the big rah, 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 spiel, yeah. and then and you can kind of see different responses to that like some engaged some not so engaged and but um the sense of a country that is just really at odds with um, with its political leadership and yeah, um, yeah and, and it's and it's a, a good three hours I think and it's um, really really it's something to be in the sea of bodies all rising yeah. up basically yeah and it's a very uh, uh, unlike a lot of these films are often quite you know close up and immersive yeah, yeah. and shaky it is it is these wide vistas yeah. of action and you're just kind of trying to make sense as you see yeah. people pull up cobblestones and, yeah and um yeah so he's yeah he's made a film Austerwitz as well yeah. which is a documentary that played this year about um concentration camps yeah. and uh and tourism in those places now yeah yeah uh so fascinating guy yeah. And that is our speed ramp yeah. through um, quite a few documentaries. Uh, hopefully you uh, found at least one or two that you might want to watch there. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and again, if you ever have any um, ideas for us, hit us up on Twitter, Jacob Bunny and Dilla Monster, although yeah. he's there more often than I am these days. And, and, and if you have uh, documentaries you want to recommend to us, 
do feel free to hit us up and, and let us know. Yeah, and, and, and we'll try and get a list of the ones that we've talked yeah. about. Maybe we'll do our runners up next time because yeah. there's a few more that we wanted yeah. to talk about. But uh, I think two hours is a good start for anybody yeah. who's curious. So until yeah. next time, this is Doug. This is Jacob. And this was Best Worst Podcast. Cheers. Cheers.